You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries. Glad you're here. Um, uh, if this is your first time, my name is Luke. Um, I'm on staff with Equip, Equip Ministries. Um, this is what I do full time. a uh, college pastor, missionary, staff guy at Equip. Um, do lots of different stuff. This is one of them. I speak on Wednesday nights and blab at you and we open the word and consider God's, God's words together. Um, a brief intro about myself. Go to my slides first, and then we'll go to the video. Um, or actually, you know what? Yeah, that works. Okay, we'll go through some things. Uh, I'm married. I got two kids currently. Um, they are the, the Asher's on your left. That's Lewis. Uh, that's my wife, Emma. That's also, those are all Lewis over there. Asher got left in the dust a little bit, but uh, those are just older ones. That's my wife, Emma. They're cute boys, correct? Yeah. Yes, they're yeah. probably the cutest boys maybe ever. Well, being being parents, <laughs> no, I, I'm that's the opposite of humility actually. <laughs> they're cute and they're wonderful and they're they're great. They're also difficult. This is uh, the video again. This is an example of Lewis. Just a number of months ago, this used to be him. He still makes some noises, uh, but <clears throat> this is real sound out of his mouth. Go ahead. Make sure it's loud. Much louder. Right there, that's really that's that's a good example of parenthood at that moment. For that moment. I, I I kid you not, I have not experienced the level of frustration and anger at times than I did during that sound. It's funny now, but oh my word, it was very very difficult to stand. A few moments later, the guy tried to tried to kill him in the car in the movie. Feel like that sometimes. I'm never gonna kill my son, but. Uh, on a dark note, so so that's Lewis. Uh, I thought it'd be fun to show you that. That's on my Facebook page in case you just so desire to oh, to watch and listen to it again. That is actually the mouth, the, the sound. It sounds like a constipated dinosaur or something. <laughs> just you would was, not know what that sound. It was so so <laughs> aggravating. It was just awful. And he would just do it all the time. He would just he would just do it. What's that? <laughs> What's that? Yeah. If literally, I'm okay, I'll get you another spoonful of applesauce. And the moments it takes to get it to him, he was so frustrated, he would. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, back to the slides. So those are my boys. I thought that would be fun to display. Another Is that the end pictures of them? I think it is. Uh, so that's it. So I'm married, been married a few years. I went to school here. Uh, graduate of music education. Any music majors in the room? Zero. Summer. Uh, <laughs> then I did ministry, started doing ministry full time, and went to Bethel Seminary for a few years in St. Paul, Minnesota, and graduated from there, and stay here and do this ever since. I have a conviction and a, a passion and enjoyment of for college ministry, obviously specifically for you guys, for college students. I consider college ministry to be a really unique opportunity, um, uh, and specifically college to be a unique opportunity that you'll never have again. And the kind of thing that exists on the university campus with thousands of people living in the same spot is huge. You're gonna shape the rest of the world. And so that's one reason I do 
college ministry. Really brief overview of what we do as Equip. Well, this is going to be short. Um, you heard a little bit of this at the barbecue if you were there. Um, and also, before I get there too, just encourage you, if you didn't sign up for Bible studies, if you're a Christian, if you profess to be a Christian, I can't encourage you enough to commit to a Bible study. It's one, one and a half hours out of your week. And I would encourage you, in fact, not to just sign up, but just say, I'm going to make that absolute commitment. <laughs> it doesn't have to be with us, but that would be great. Um, and do it. It's perhaps nothing more, very, very few things more important in your life in these next few months and years than you commit to reading the word, and I would say, with others. And especially with some others that want to see you grow and learn it better and know God more. Just decide. Know that is a super healthy, important thing for you. Everything else is going to say it, it gets in the way. Oh, i got to study. i got to test tomorrow. I'm not going to go or whatever. So, so do that. A couple things. Um, equip. Here's us as a nutshell, as a ministry. We, our mission statement, they never put the mission statement up there, is to enable students, college students in your case, to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have uh, certain aspects in which we proclaim, that's the next slide, um, proclaim the gospel. Uh, we do it on Wednesday nights. Uh, oh, Fall Retreat's coming up. <laughs> September 22nd, so I'll sign up for Fall Retreat next week. Next slide. Uh, Men's and women's events, I forgot about all that stuff. There's men's and women's, a couple weeks from now we're gonna have men's and women's events, so be, have your ears up for that, next slide. Uh, there's events and parties uh, coming up, lots of fun things, that's important, the fire on Friday, et cetera, et cetera, do a lot of stuff like that. Here it is. To equip students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel. Specifically, to equip you to do this. If you're a Christian and you really love Jesus, we want to see you do this more. If you're not a Christian or uncertain, we want to see you converted to be straightforward with you, to become a Christian, to love Jesus, and do this more, to be able to proclaim the gospel, explain it, and defend it uh, to your neighbors, to your peers. And so we do various things. Wednesday night is one of them. We want you to be able to proclaim. And just the basic conviction under there is that we believe in truth. And we believe speaking truth about what you believe really, really matters. Um, to do so takes courage. It pretty much... Uh, the main ingredient, and it's a characteristic of our age, maybe of our generation, perhaps in particular, that's lacking often. It takes courage to actually stand up and proclaim what you believe to be true, and so we want you to be able to do that, courage to speak, courage to live it, courage to lose everything for it. We want you to be able to explain the gospel, which is another step further. It means you're diving deeper into understanding who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. This requires some digging. Um, we are very, very used to a diet of spiritual junk food. Um, you guys are used to it. I'm used to it. We're used to and accustomed and, in fact, enjoy triviality and amusement and entertainment. It's in almost every single one of our pockets at the very moment, a universe of triviality and a universe of distraction from deep, important things of the Lord and of his world. And so it's difficult. And what we want you to be able to do is explain and understand the gospel yourself. Understand God's word. It's like uh, we believe in truth with a capital T, and it's like the North Star to uh, a sailor. It's really, really important, and we believe in it. So we don't want to start 100 feet down. What we want to do at Equip, one thing we aim to do on Wednesday nights is not to just rake the surface. Um, I'm not going to give you how to... Uh, lectures, how to make your life better, five quick simple steps, or uh, how to have your best life now, or other 
similar unbiblical teachings, quite frankly. Um, but we do want to start digging. And when you dig hard, it takes work, but you discover gold. When you rake, you all you get is leaves. If all you read is uh, Facebook and you know play games and whatever, you're just going to get leaves. You're going to get the triviality of the world. What we want to do is dig down deep and find the gold that God has for us. Lastly, defend. We want to defend the gospel. Um, maybe some of you had this experience already. It would be interesting to hear later. When I was a freshman, um, there was a particular professor. I had a Psych 101 class in Rotunda D, which is a big room in Rotunda. Um, at Psych 101, and he, at the beginning of class, there's 300 some odd freshmen in the class, he stood up, he literally held up a Bible and declared to the whole class that the Bible, uh, God doesn't exist. Um, I've read this cover to cover, and I can tell you it's a bunch of crap. It's not true. Evolution is true, is the way he went through it. Evolution is true. There is no God. Just get used to it. It's just the way it is. That's almost a quote. It's very, very close to what he said. And for me personally, maybe some of you are better thinkers than I was, but as a, as a freshman at the time, it freaked me out big time. I didn't have the kind of, uh, I, I didn't have an upbringing that valued the life of the mind for the Christian. We value dodgeball instead for youth group, right? And we valued movies and other things. It wasn't completely absent, but by and large, there was a great deal undervaluing for me. So when I heard that, I, I thought, here's this PhD professor who is obviously very smart, declaring to me as an atheist, he's an atheist, doesn't believe God exists, obviously. And it freaked me out. I didn't know what to do, how to respond to that. And if that sounds like a movie, uh, you know, sort of is. <laughs> God's not dead. And then I got up and I went and challenged him and we had this argument for several weeks. Uh, and I proved that God existed. No, I didn't do that. Uh, I sat there quivering in my chair. That's actually what I did. Um, later on, I did actually challenge him to, a, to debate somebody else. If you want to hear that story, it's turned into a long, unhealthy relationship with this professor. Uh, but at the time, I was freaked out. So anyways, there was a, there's been a long history um, in this ministry in particular of emphasizing, do you understand why you believe what you believe? Do you understand what you believe, first, first of all? Do you care enough? And then furthermore, do you actually know why? If someone challenged you, um, just walked up to you, I did this to a different ministry booth one year, just a couple freshman girls, I walked up and said, Oh, are you interested in such and such? I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't, I don't really believe God exists. And I said, I did. And then I was like, why do you believe God exists anyways? Pretty much just like that. And literally, this was the response. <laughs> they were honestly quite terrified. I had no clue what to say. And I was a little intense with them. And I only let it go for like two, three seconds. And I, I'm just kidding. Whatever. <laughs> but do you know why you believe that? Um, do what do you respond to when someone challenges you or will very very seriously or rather even more importantly your own heart struggles with it uh, the problem of suffering and evil do you know that God is all-powerful and do you know that he's all good and do you know that that at least on the surface sounds like a problem there's a lot of evil and suffering if God's all-powerful and all good can he not stop it or doesn't want to is he not all-powerful he really wants to stop it but he can't or is he he can but he just would rather just let it be, and isn't all good. That's putting it lightly. Or many, many other issues. Why do you trust the New Testament? Don't you know there's lots of scribal errors in the New Testament documents dating back hundreds of years? There are. And I can explain what I mean by that. Um, what do you think? How do you think about it? I, I would define our current era right now, in the West at least, my word is confusion. We are so crazy confused about what reality is that we don't know our heads from our... Um, what do you think about uh, homosexuality and sex?
sexuality in general. What do you think about gender and the transgender movement right now that is very much in, in certain ways uh, challenging the basic Christian doctrine about the teaching of man, anthropology? How do you think about that? How should you think about that as a Christian? How do you respond to people that struggle with such things? Some of you might have some good footing in there. My guess is most of you feel very lost in that. If you're honest with yourself, I, I feel very lost in some of that stuff still, uh, in, in aspects. And so, so it's important. And not just so you can win an argument. That's actually not the point. The point is that you have confidence in your faith and love the Lord your God with all your mind. And so we exist to also defend the gospel. So that's an overview. I think that's the last slide. Um, one brief thing on Monday nights, actually starting this next Monday, is a collaborative effort to those things specifically. We don't tend to deal with some of those questions directly on Wednesday nights. Transgenderism, for instance, or, or homosexuality and, and how to think about that. Now and again we do, but most of the time we have some of those questions. Uh, we deal with them in a thing called Ratio Christi. It's a collaborative ministry, more or less, that all the various college ministries say, yeah, let's do that. That's Monday nights at 5. Uh, actually, that wasn't the picture up there. Um, Monday nights at 5 in the Dactronics Engineering Hall, number 209, Dac Hall 209. Um, this next Monday will be an overview start of the semester because the next week is soft and no class. So some of those things pique your interest, um, come talk to me. I would also encourage you to attend Ratio Christi. It's not a worship type situation. It's very much teaching discussion uh, only in which we dive into some of those difficult things. We're dealing with science and faith this semester. How should Christians think about evolution? How should we think about creation? How should we think about the, the false narrative that you guys have all grown up with that science and faith are at odds, at war with one another? Um, how do we think about that? We're dealing with that stuff. So tonight we're talking about the gospel, however. Here's the meat and potatoes of, of our time together. Um, <clears throat> let's go ahead and push B for the time being until we get there. Let me pray for us one more time before we jump into the, the gospel. Father, thank you again. We um, give you praise and now just ask again that you would grant uh, open ears and Father you would awaken even in this very moment I pray and, and request Lord to petition you that you would grant us uh, an awakened mind an awakened heart to love you and to understand the gospel so Father I pray you would um, do this you would cause us to see you clearly now um, you would grant us sight we ask this in Jesus name Amen so here's the center of Christianity it's the gospel um, many of you have known that, probably uh, almost all of you, I wouldn't be surprised if I had to raise a hand, that every single one of you grew up in church in some context. I mentioned the barbecue that in the last couple of years, it's something around 95% of the incoming freshman class, it's about the same this year, professes to be a Christian of some, some brand, Catholic or Protestant of, of various stripes and colors. 95%, that's huge. That doesn't exist in universities all over the place. SSU is probably a fairly bit unique university in which almost everyone at least says, oh, uh, yeah, Christian. Plenty of those people, plenty of you, so to speak, um, that say I'm a Christian, you know, something like 50% say you never read the Bible or, or have very little interest in knowing God more. So there's some major disparities. But a lot of people profess to be Christian, which means a lot of people are at least raised in church to some degree. And so what I don't want to do is take that for granted. I actually think it's maybe the biggest danger for a bunch of people that think they're Christians is taking a whole bunch of things like the word gospel for granted without actually understanding it. What the gospel is, is the blazing center 
It's the blazing sun at the center of the solar system of all of Christian belief. Everything. The whole entire Bible is centered, and historically, the Bible will profess to say, all of history is centered around the gospel. It's around this cross that Jesus died on. The strange profession that we have as Christians, I've seen some of you, in fact, have crosses on your neck. You're wearing an execution device on your neck, you know. That's what you have on. It'd be like wearing a noose or an electric chair. Oh, nice piece of jewelry. Thanks. I got it at the, you know, the execution I went to last weekend. What? Why would you wear an execution? If you were in first century Rome, it would be, you wouldn't wear the cross around your neck. That's what we do. And Christians do that. I'm not mocking you for having a cross. Christians do that because it's at the center. So what is the gospel? So basically, what we're going to do is take three uh, uh, angles at considering what the gospel is, relatively briefly. If the gospel is a, a diamond or something, we're going to turn it three different angles and look at it and try and get as clear a picture as possible, starting with uh, worldview. The gospel as a worldview. Um, who's heard of the word worldview before and has a faint notion of what they think it means? I'm not going to call it. Okay. But most people, interesting. That didn't used to be the case. It's basically just a set of beliefs that encompass all of what you think of reality. It really does shape everything you do. Everything that you ultimately believe shapes the rest of your life. And so the gospel as a worldview is the, the basement, subfloor level, foundational level that builds up on everything else. And it starts in the very beginning with the book of Genesis, which is the book of beginnings, with creation. The, this is the way I, I've been really, really helped by understanding the basic overview. You could also call this the uh, biblical story arc. It's this big, long narrative. God has written a story in which are various elements. And the beginning is in Genesis, the book of beginnings. We start with creation. This is the five C's of the gospel. They happen to start with C's. Don't happen to, but it's helpful. So first is creation, Genesis 1, 131. And God saw everything that he had made. This is at the end of the, the narrative of creation. He saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. End quote, Genesis 1, 131. So this is what we believe to be true. This, this really is important. This is foundational stuff. We believe we are made in a created world. This world didn't just happen. There's many implications of this. There's only two I'm going to go into because I have to be very brief. One is that we are created creatures, therefore. And therefore, we're not our own. You right now sitting there do not belong to yourself. You don't have... Uh, authority ultimately over yourself. You don't have an autonomy, a completely separate governance of yourself because you were created by your creator. If we don't belong to ourselves, we are accountable and responsible to someone else. This is baseline Christian theology that makes all the difference in the world and has shaped Western culture, by the way, but it makes all the difference in the world for how you live and how you think. You belong to someone else. That's one implication, that we're not our own. Two, based on this doctrine, the world we call home is fundamentally good because it was made by a good God. And this is crucial. This world, Christians believe, is fundamentally, first and foremost, a good place. That's what God said. Behold, he saw everything he had made. He didn't say, and it was, ah, it was full of sinful creatures. Or it was messed up and maybe one day will accomplish its, its purpose. It was good. He called it very good. That means all of nature, all of reality, all of everything is in its essence. It has a certain kind of goodness to it because it was made by God. 
this is contrary to the vast uh, secular overriding principle that that is essentially in control and shaping Western culture very, very rapidly. It's in contrary to it. It's the opposite. The opposite view, the opposite worldview professes that ultimately everything has come from the mind, has been unintentional, and is actually just kind of improving. But it's, it's, there's not a goodness to it. Christians believe it's good. And this has a huge impact upon how we, how we live. It also naturally corresponds to the universal intuition that we have as humans that something's not quite right. Correct? There's a reason that we argue over laws. There's a reason that politicians uh, argue over laws. There's a reason we vote certain ways. There's a reason we just were broken in the first place. It starts with the fact that things aren't as they ought to be, which means there's a way they should be, which the Christian professes to be God's given uh, goodness. So things are broken, so that's the second one, corruption. Second C of the gospel worldview, God created all things, they're good, but they've fallen. And these two things back to back is, is super important for a Christian. All of the world is now twisted and bent out of its original intention. It's still there, the goodness is still there, but it's this constant and in every facet of all of reality, bentness to it. It's twisted. Two minutes on the nightly news will tell you this, or an honest look in the mirror in front uh, at night will tell you this, that things are not the way they should be. They are fallen. And this is because of sin. God cursed the world, Genesis says. The Lord cursed it and brought upon a curse after the fall of Adam and Eve. The way the Bible describes it is that they sinned, they disobeyed. Uh, their, their good, perfect Heavenly Father who provides for them, they disobeyed. And as a result, God cursed them. As a result, death entered the world and everything started to fall apart. That's the world we live in. Don't take that for granted. Things went from good to hopeless and to from an eternal separation from our good God. We are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and by that nature we're born into this corruption. If you doubt that, uh, just wait until you have kids and try and raise them. No one has ever taught a child to disobey their parents. Or at least no one in the right mind. No one has ever needed to encourage a kid to disobey and be whiny and fussy and terrible and throw a tantrum and, and steal and hit their brother and do all sorts of terrible things. No one ever encouraged a child to do that. It's what they naturally do in this broken world. The next two are Christ and cross. These are two of the side of the same coin. In a nutshell, the good news is the answer to all of this bad news. The bad news is everything is corrupted. It's twisted, but Christ has come into the world. Jesus Christ is God himself become man. He lived a real life. He was tempted in every way. He was suffered in every categorical way and yet was without sin. He was the perfect God-man. He loved God perfectly. He loved his fellow neighbor perfectly. He never once sinned against his fellow man. You, me, have never gone a day for that to be true. Probably never an hour in our hearts. Jesus says, you even been angry, sinfully angry with your brother, you're liable to the fire of hell. You've lusted after a woman in your heart. It's like you've committed adultery, right? Probably we've never gone an hour. Certainly we've never gone a day. He went his whole life without sin. He lived this life. He, the Bible describes him as the second Adam, right? What the first Adam failed to do, Jesus comes and he's described metaphorically as the second Adam who fulfills God's intentions. 
And so God finds perfect delight in Jesus as man. He finds perfect delight in him. He finds no fault in him. I am, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he says, in his baptism. So Christ lived that life. That's the life Christ lived for us. And the second part is cross. Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for the punishment against sin that we deserved. He died on a cross as a substitute for us. He lived the life we ought to live, that God calls us to, that he holds us responsible. We're responsible for our choices. Jesus lived that life and died the death that we ought to die. What he offers is restored relationship to God the Father. To God the Creator Father, he offers restored relationship. And I'm going to be done on that one because then we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Finally, consummation. The biblical story arc has an end point. We call it, uh, we have a word in theology called eschatology, called the study of the end times. And consummation means the completion. There's an end point in which all of history is going, we profess. Jesus says that one day all things will be made new. There will be actually a new heavens and the new earth. Um, I grew up with the vague notion that we'll go and be spirits in heaven this, this vague uh, ethereal heaven someday with God. It's not true. There'll be a new heavens. There'll be recreated. A new earth that will be recreated. And on it will dwell righteousness. A heaven, uh, Revelation will descend out of, or a city will descend out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. There'll be this new garden in the middle of this city. It's all this imagery from the garden that God's original intention was to be, which was for the earth to flourish. Right? It wasn't just Adam and Eve are going to come and I'm going to make sure that they sin and there's lots of suffering. It was Adam and Eve, a whole population of humans that will flourish and trade and love and commute and build all to the glory of God. It will all reflect the glory of God as they go out into the wilderness, out of the garden. It fell. The end point is a new city. God is going to recreate everything. And if, if there's one word that sums that history up or that, that where history is going, it's hope. The reason people commit suicide is because they don't have hope, ultimately. It's, they don't have it. They're absolutely in despair, so and they don't. The biblical storyline, as opposed to other ones, biblical narrative, the biblical gospel worldview is ultimately at the end of all things, we have hope. There's a new heavens and a new earth that will God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. So one thing to say about this is that Christianity is a truth claim over all of reality. That's the end point I want to have in this section. Christianity is a truth claim about everything. It's not just a religious belief. If you ever heard the phrase, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, in this sense, that it's a good place to use it, although the relationship at this moment. But it isn't a religion in that sense. If you've experienced religion just to be the stuff you do on Sunday and maybe do youth group and maybe do whatever, it's a truth claim that says it has a uh, ownership and truth claim over all people of all time for all of history. That's, that's the claim. It's a huge claim. Uh, our generation, we're raised to just naturally think that's an arrogant, pompous thing to say, that I, my truth is right. The truth I believe, I believe to be true for everyone. We're raised to think that, but it's not. And this is the claim. This is the biblical claim. The biblical story arc is creation, everything's good, it's all fallen, but it's important to start with it's good. God sends his son, Christ, to live a perfect life and be the man whom he intended human beings to be and more. He died on a cross for our sins, and one day it's going to end in ultimate hope with God. So that's a gospel worldview in a very small nutshell. 
That's fast. I know that's a lot of content in one sense. But it's really important that if you profess to be a Christian, and if you don't, that you understand this is a truth claim for everyone. And it matters whether you believe it. Second, second way to look at this is three categories of religion, irreligion, and the gospel. <clears throat> religion, irreligion, and the gospel. There's three categories. I think, I steal this from Tim Keller, I think all human beings in one way, shape, or form fit into these three categories. You're either a religious person, you're an irreligious person, or, as we'll get to, you're actually a Christian. Let's start with actually the second one, the irreligious. The irreligious person is the category of people who might acknowledge God, perhaps, that he is or exists, but who flip God the bird, essentially. Consequences be damned. This is the irreligious. It's the uh, person who are the younger brother, the prodigal sons, in the famous parable of the prodigal son of Jesus' parable. This is the younger brother. Quite literally, demands his father's inheritance, goes and wastes it all on, on booze, sex, and rock and roll, goes and ends up living with the pigs, just completely blows his life. This is the irreligious person who says, screw it. Even if you believe God exists, you have nothing to do with him. Your life is void of any religious devotion whatsoever. You throw religion, you throw any concern for God out the window. These people exist, obviously. Some of you are probably fit in this category, um, or have. Plenty of Christians who have been converted live this life of just self-consumption. It also might not be a completely destructive life. It might be just a person utterly consumed with material goods and possessions. This is actually the constant pull of us. Is you're going to go to college to get a job, to get a lot of money, to have a good family, to have a good house and a lot of cars and happy and die wealthy and in your bed, right? And that in itself is a very irreligious perspective. So that's a lot of people. Um, I would argue that this kind of life tends to stick out. It's often more destructive um, in its upon other people in the world. That's an irreligious category. The second one is religious. There's the religious people. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, religious people aren't any better off, although it always or often seems so. There's a category called religious people. Religious people are, what I would say, are the nice, good-mannered, Midwestern-like people who work hard. It actually these religious people often have a very good work ethic, provide for themselves and their families and other people, maybe volunteer a lot, help your neighbors, earn good grades, generally get along and do well in life. I think that describes a lot of people in our Midwestern context. Probably from California too. Those of you from California, but I'm from the Midwest. I think that describes a lot of people. Basically good people. People you might enjoy hanging out with, in fact. They're not wanting to go get wasted every single weekend, wasting their money and destroying their bodies and, and abusing women with their minds and their bodies and all the rest that comes along with the party scene. They're not doing that, right? They're saving and respectable. In a word, they're respectable, the religious people. They don't do drugs. They're not drunkards. These people in Jesus' parable are the elder brothers. These are the good brother who stays home working for their dad, but uh, religious people are just as bad off as irreligious. The person who is drinking themselves to death um, at the bars every weekend or whatever is no worse off 
than the respectable religious church attending person. Zero. The guy drinking himself to death, death might be in a slightly better position because he knows this is destroying me. This is this obviously been going with this. Deep down, you know that. The religious person might be deceived, thinking I'm doing right, I'm doing all right, and you're you're the you're the four people, right? But your elder brother, this was me. This is my tendency, big time. The elder brother appears good and moral, but inwardly are full of pride and ugliness. Not truly interested in loving others. In the parable, he didn't love his brother at all. And the prodigal son comes back. The father runs out to him and says, "Kill the fattened calf. Literally, let's throw a party. Let's eat a lot of meat. You know, let's celebrate because I love my son." And his elder brother refuses to join. He says, "Screw you. You who took your inheritance, and he doesn't want anything. He doesn't actually love his brother." And at the end of the day, he doesn't actually love his, his father either. He's not interested in it. Jesus describes these kind of people. He has the harshest words for these kind of people, in fact, as whitewashed tombs, bleached tombs, you might say, squeaky clean on the outside and very respectable and very religious and devoted, but full of rotting death on the inside. It's a tomb. The tomb is full of rotting death. That's what he called the Pharisees. That's what he called the people who had the Bible memorized in the day. Jesus says, you are whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. They looked great on the outside and were full of death. And so, if they're no better off, this is the crucial question. If that description matches you, or either one, and neither one is worse off, despite all outward appearances that we tend to consider, why? What makes the religious person no better off than the irreligious person? I would answer is that they are both without God. Both category people are without God. The irreligious person lives a licentious life and forgets God's righteousness, forgets God, doesn't care. Lives a licentious life of pleasure-seeking, um, self-centeredness. The religious person lives a moral life, quote-unquote, of self-righteousness without God. Irreligious is a licentious life. The religious person lives this moral life of self-righteousness, which is evil in God's sight. It has nothing to do with God, with what I do and how good I think I am. That's why both are terrible off. And I think that's why the religious person, the elder brother, is such a dangerous position because it's so easy to be deceived thinking you're good when in fact you're not. So the third category I would suggest to you is the gospel category is sinners saved by grace. Followers of Christ, in perhaps the most important sense, in the most uh, uh, irreducible sense, followers of Christ, in short, are sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace. We're the bad guys in the story, we're sinners. We're the bad guys in the Midwestern story who deserve the noose at high noon. Jesus is the righteous, good sheriff upholding the law. That's who we are in reality. This is the gospel message. This is what the Bible teaches. We're actually the bad guy. And Jesus has every right to come. He found us, and they're going to hang us at high noon for our crimes. Luckily, there's grace. Instead of justly condemning us, to use the metaphor, Jesus, as the sheriff, the white white hair or white hat white right he's 
pure and righteous and motives are perfect, instead of doing what's just, which is, in fact, hanging us, he doesn't just let us go. He actually steps up, takes the noose off our neck, puts it around his own neck as this righteous sheriff, and tells the hangman to do his job. This is what Jesus does for sinners. He steps in. That's why we call it a substitute. He substitutes himself for those who don't deserve it. If you're watching that movie, most of the time, most of us, maybe almost all the time, we, if we see that movie, we go, no! Like, legitimately, there'd be anger in that. That's not how Westerns end. That's not justice. It's terrible. It's pathetic. No good sheriff does that. All Westerns, unless I'm missing a Western, 100% of them end with the bad guy either in jail or dead, and the sheriff or the good guy has the girl. And we feel this rightness to this, right? There's been some kind of justice that's happened. The gospel message is that the sheriff takes the penalty and says, you may let him go. There needs to be justice done. I will take it instead. This is the gospel message. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the phrase, Jesus died for you, means. I think this is one of those phrases. I went, I, I went around and did video interviews with people a couple years ago, and I asked what's the center message of Christianity. A lot of people said, uh, Jesus died for you. And they're, they're all put on the spot in front of a camera, so it's not always totally fair. But a lot of people say Jesus died for you. And a couple times when I pushed on that, there is not much, if any, understanding. What does that mean that he died for you? Someone walks up to you at the beach. A stranger comes up to you in beautiful water, and he walks up and runs up and says, I'm going to die for you. And you say, huh? And he runs off this long dock, jumps into the water, and drowns to death. <laughs> and everyone around you says, he died for you. Isn't that great? <laughs> Shouldn't you follow him now, or you all, you know, something? You, that just, there's something there. It's like, what? What does it mean he died for me? He died, and he said, for me, I'm going to die for you. What does that mean? He just died. It doesn't mean anything. It's, it's nonsense. It's suicide, actually, in that moment. So what the heck does it mean that Jesus died for me? What does it actually mean? And in the gospel, it means that Jesus' death actually did something. Jesus' death fulfilled justice. It fulfilled justice. God's forgiveness of sins is not like a cosmic nanny uh, sweeping the cosmic sin under the, uh, under the cosmic uh, rug. Right? It's not just, oh, I forgive you. I forgive. God just forgives everyone. He's loving, right? So he forgives people. That's not just how it works. It's not that simple. God is a good God. He's a just God that has to uh, that can't stand injustice, injustice in the world. It can't remain. Right? If, the, if in the Western analogy, if, if the sheriff doesn't hang himself, he just says, you know, this guy just murdered a bunch of people in the town. They finally caught him. It's in the climax, and there's going to be some justice. He's at least going to go to jail, right? And the sheriff says, it's okay, everyone. I want you to know I love this man, and I forgive him. Let him go. Right? They, it wouldn't stand. There's, we know intuitively that's not right. We know this. It's wrong. The same if my, my favorite analogy is a judge on Brookings County on the bench, a convicted and self-confessed uh, uh, rapist and murderer who was caught red-handed. The judge just said, uh, he's definitely guilty, he's confessed to it, but I forgive him, let him go. The judge would be off the bench in a blink of an eye. It couldn't remain. We know that's not justice. And we live in a just world because God is good. And so we live in a reality in which our choices have actual meaning. We actually are accountable for our lives. 
And so the Bible deals with this problem. How can God be just and forgive people? And if you hit B again, Romans 3.23 through 26, uh, Paul deals with this. He declares this reality in verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is our ultimate problem. We're falling short of the glory of God. And Paul says, and we are justified or made right, made just with God. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, a satisfaction, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And he closes it in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's why he did it. It was to show and display that God is a just God and he's a God who forgives sins. And he can do both. And only in Jesus, only in the God-man, is there a way for God to remain just and forgive. This is the gospel. Is it only through Christ that we can attain this right relationship with the Lord? We have righteousness that God can interact with us. We can love him as a father and no longer as a judge. It's only through Christ that that's possible. Because he lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. And he rose again from the grave. And then there's this mystical, spiritual union that we have with him in faith. We're connected. We're in Christ. God sees us as though we're standing in the shadow of Jesus. When he sees us, even now, if you truly are in Jesus, he sees you as if you have perfect righteousness in Christ despite your current sins. He has this perfect love, perfect forgiveness for you because of Jesus. This is, what the, this is what it means that Jesus died for you. He took your place and now makes it possible for God to love. Now makes it possible for you to commune with the Lord. Third and finally, a little bit shorter, two quick things. So we're saved. This is the lingo that Christians use that many people, I think the Christianese, uh, language that's used, we're saved, we're saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. What does it mean that we're saved? Literally, I remember when I was about 17 years old, I was at camp, and like legitimately had physical pain all week until God broke open my mind to understand just the phrase, what does it mean that God saved me? I came to understand, and I kid you not, I, I bawled like a little baby. I had physical pain all week long, and he took it. It was this weird, I don't know what was going on, but some spiritually induced thing into my body. And he opened my eyes to understand what does it mean to be saved. Here's what it means. Here's two things it means primarily. We're saved from something. If you confess that you're a sinner, you come to God, you get saved from something. You get saved, like every time someone yanks you out of the pool, you get saved from drowning. We get saved from the just, righteous anger of God. In a nutshell, or in a word, I guess, you get saved, we get saved from God himself. Did you know that? Do you think upon that? You're not just saved from Satan. I used to actually think, when Jesus said, he says, uh, I forgot to reference this, but Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't fear them, he says. Have no fear of the people, so all they can do is burn you alive. Right? Don't fear them cut your head off in northern Iraq or something. Don't fear them. Have no fear of them. He says, rather, you're supposed to fear somebody. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. For many years, you know, as a kid growing up, I thought he was talking about Satan. Just 
Fear him who can destroy your body and soul in hell. That's Satan, right? It's not. He's talking about his father. He's talking about the just creator God. Fear him who can destroy you eternally. We are saved from God himself. We're saved from righteous, just anger. Just, the Bible uses the word wrath. God has a righteous wrath against sin. It's, we're, we have almost zero experience with this kind of righteous anger. Maybe you've had a moment in your life where you, you know, maybe you've had a couple. I've had maybe one or two where I think I had really pure anger, right? The Bible does tell you to hate, be angry at what is at evil in Romans 12. God has a perfect, just, holy anger, a wrath, and we're saved from it. That's what we're saved from. If you turn to Jesus, you're saved from God. If you turn your life from yourself, and you repent, you come to Jesus, you come to God and say, forgive me. That's what we're saved from. We're also saved for something, or to something. I say for because it starts with that. We're saved for something. We aren't just saved from something, but for something. We're given new spiritual taste buds to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what we're given. We're given new spiritual taste buds. We're given uh, that, that don't enjoy uh, their, our old life. Our fundamental problem as human beings is that we don't enjoy the spiritual taste of God. This is the fundamental way to describe our problem. You naturally, fundamentally, don't enjoy the spiritual taste, so to speak, of who God is. We don't value him. This is what worship and praise is. You hear the word worship, you hear the word praise, we describe it sometimes, but coming to worship. We're going to go worship tonight at the Equip. Well, you can say that, but fundamentally what worship is is an expression of value. It's a verbal and physical and real expression from your life of what you value, of what you love, what you find pleasure in. And so we are meant to make much of God by enjoying him. In a word, we are saved for God. We are saved to the Lord. God is meant to be for our souls what the stars are for our eyes. That's what he's meant to be. That's what the world is created to be. We look up, we look up in an eclipse. I heard an audio recording of someone witnessing it. We couldn't. And they just screamed. The whole crowd just went berserkle, screaming, oh my gosh, oh my You know, and you could at one sense just say, it's just dark out. Like, you just can't see the sun. What are you so impressed about? But they're impressed, and they ought to be. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So when we look up to the stars and enjoy them as we ought to, it's saying something about the Lord. That's what it's doing, Psalm 19, 1 says. The heavens declare God's glory. And so you're meant to. God's actually made your eyes for that purpose, and one purpose is to enjoy. You know, I don't know what's happening there. You look up at the stars, you go, oh, man, it's beautiful tonight. Or you look up at the sunset, or you look up at the rainbow, or whatever it is, a beautiful flower, and you go, man. You get pleasure from that. God made it that way. And that's meant to be our experience of the Lord with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls. So God doesn't just save us from hell. He does save us from hell. That's the offer of the gospel. He saves us to himself, which means you love him. You treasure him. You delight in him. Your default desire is to know him. Your default desire increasingly is I want to kill my sin. I want to live for him. I want to put away all hindrances and the sin that clings so closely. I want to love the Lord. That's what a Christian is. 
uh, person who really follows Jesus, who doesn't just say it. That's what a Christian is. You love God. That's what it means to love him. So, we don't naturally do this. We don't naturally, in our sin, honor him by experiencing him in these ways. We naturally prefer other things, and it professes the biggest, worst lie in all the world to profess or to prefer other things to Jesus, to God. It says Jesus is not great. That's what it says. God is not great. If you listen to Chopin and go, that sucks, or you listen to Bach, or you listen to Beethoven, I prefer Lil Wayne. You're professing a lie, a fundamental lie. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm only tiny, slightly kidding about that. If you listen to great music, go bleh, you're professing a lie that it, that it isn't great. When you, and on the flip side, when you go to your buddy and say, man, you should listen to the song I just heard by Lil Wayne or whatever, you know, if you like Lil Wayne or whatever. Listen to the song, it's amazing. What are you professing? You're not telling, you shouldn't be, you're not expressing to your friend, man, consider my awesome taste in music. It's actually often what we're unfortunately doing. That's not what primarily it's meant to be. Man, you are really good at picking good music. No, no. What you're doing is, is worshiping. You're praising something. You're saying, man, that band, that song, or whatever, is good. And what you do then, hey, listen with me, right? Come and listen to this. It's great. Experience this glory of this music that I'm listening to. It's really good and enjoyable. Come listen. This is meant to be the experience of God to us as a Christian. We're meant to love him. It's not natural, and so this is what conversion is. And this is the call. I'll end here. This is what conversion is. Conversion happens when God supernaturally opens the eyes of your soul. So I just will say to you now, if this isn't your experience of God, or it's hardly any of your experiences, I would suggest to you that you may have grown up religious and not grown up a Christian. Not a real follower of Jesus, a follower of Jesus who delights in him. That may be the case for you. And that's the most dangerous, fearful position to be in all of your life. The, the, the most uh, dangerous thing is to stand before this just and holy God and not have him as a father, rather have him as a judge. But conversion is what God does. It's a supernatural thing. You can't do it. He gives you new spiritual taste buds. You just can't do it. You can't Move your finger, you can move your finger up and down by your will, but you can't click your heart to delight in Jesus and love him more than all of life. And so that's the prayer. In other words, God is the gospel, to finish that little thing. We are saved for God. God is the good news. We get God. And that's what we want as Christians. So the gospel is grace. The gospel is even called this in the New Testament. It's the grace of God. And if you haven't experienced it, I challenge you to pray the call to the irreligious person is to repent of sins, repent of the life of debauchery, a life of, of uh, uh, licentiousness, a life of not caring about God, and turn to the Savior. The call to the religious person is the same, except repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your sins, and repent of the, thought, the fact that you think you're righteous, when in fact, if you don't know the Savior, you're not. So the call is the same, and that's my call to you. If you don't know Jesus, or you maybe even in the moment can wonder, maybe I don't actually love the Savior. The, the door stands open. The door, the offer of the gospel is whoever knocks may enter. Right? Whoever, will, whoever may will may come. So the call of the gospel, the offer of the gospel, isn't just a bunch of information. It's a call. Your life is short. 
The psalmist says, teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom because to actually reflect and believe that you're going to die is central. It's, or it's necessary to be a wise person. You're going to die. In our 18, 19, and 20s, it's almost never what you think, what we think, despite how many friends you've had that have died. You just, we naturally think we're going to live forever. Teach me to number my days and I'm going to get a heart of wisdom and use that to reflect upon the fact that Jesus called us. And if you are a Christian, he's calling you now. He still calls us to repent of sin daily. Remember, Christians are people who are sinners that have been saved by grace. We are the same mold of those who don't know Jesus. We are no better than anyone else other than that the absolute undeserved favor of God. Nothing do you earn as a Christian. Any pride that you have, if you experience Christians or people experience you this way, any pride you have as a Christian is, is absolute uh, heresy, actually. It's practical heresy, just, just, uh, proclaiming to the world that you're great rather than Jesus. So come to Jesus. If you're a Christian, come again to Jesus. And I would encourage you, I suppose, in closing, to um, come on Wednesday nights. We're going to be going through the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray. Prayer is absolutely essential to the Christian life, and we have this gold mine. Jesus himself says, pray like this. We're going to walk through that slowly, considering our Lord's teaching for prayer. So let me pray right now for us, and we will um, move into small Father, thank you again. Um, Father, just acknowledge to you that, uh, Lord, we often have much sin that clings so closely and pride um, that, uh, Lord, is, uh, is despicable and ugly in your eyes, and so we pray you would redeem us. We pray you would renew us. You would give us new hearts and renew right spirits within us, and Lord, I ask for any that don't truly know you tonight, uh, Father, especially for those who um, perhaps have grown up in church and grown up religious, but perhaps do not actually love you for who you are and what you've done. I pray you would save, that you would open eyes, uh, Father, and I pray for uh, everyone, Father, that you would grant us eyes to see you, to love you. Lord, would you take these truths and cause us to live lives that are radical and, Lord, that you would give us that conviction that you would grant us by your spirit. So Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. Pray you would do this. Would you honor your name and grant your spirit, Father, to save and sanctify. You are listening to Equip Campus Ministries, where all our event audio, panel discussions, and sermons are hosted. For more details, visit EquipCampusMinistries.org. Equip Campus Ministries exists to equip college students to humbly proclaim, explain, and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ so that in all things all people might find joy in displaying the greatness of God's glory.